Well, today's reading is James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, growing up in school, I was always a good test taker. Uh, you know, that was one of, my, one of my strengths. And so it made, you know, I had a competitive streak to me too. And so I found out that if I was doing well at taking a test, I felt good about myself and my teachers liked me more. But there was always one kind of test that I struggled with, and it happened every single year. And that was the myriad of physical tests that we faced as part of the Presidential Physical Fitness Award. I don't know if you remember doing this in school. But these are some of the tests that I struggled with because I could not climb a rope to save my life. I could do no pull-ups. I had to do the arm hang as opposed to like actually pounding out those pull-ups. And the test that I was the absolute worst at, the bane of my existence, the sit and reach. I don't know if you remember the sit and reach. I'll try to demonstrate it for you this morning. But you would sit and you put your feet flat up against this box and then you'd have to lean forward to move this little measuring thing. Uh, and so it was, it was like this and it was to see how flexible you were. And so even now, like I can't, I mean, I cannot touch my toes if you cannot see this at home. Uh, but like I scored negative on the sit and reach every single time. It was, it was awful. And so the purpose of, 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 of tests is to see how you measure up. And the purpose of tests is to give you, I guess, some sort of baseline understanding of where you are so maybe you can improve. Now today we're starting a series that's going to last a few week and it, weeks, and it's on the letter of James. And, and James was Jesus' brother. That's most likely the person who wrote this letter. And James was a leader in the church of Jerusalem. And it was, James became a follower of Jesus following the resurrection appearance. During Jesus' life, James thought his brother was crazy. 
But then James became a leader in the Jerusalem church, and the Jerusalem church was a church that dealt with many hardships and many struggles. I mean, as is obvious from Jesus's life and then his death, uh, the beginning to the mid of the first century in Jerusalem was a tumultuous time. It was a time where there was a lot of nationalist fervor and religious rebellion that was fomenting, and James's church suffered from that. In fact, things were so bad that Paul, as part of his missionary journeys, one of his tasks was to take up a collection for the Jerusalem church to help them in their poverty, in their isolation, and their persecution. And so that was the context. That was the nature of the congregation that James served. It was a congregation that knew persecution. It knew suffering. It knew impoverishment. It knew hardship. They suffered for their loyalty to Jesus. And so this is his collection of teachings for how churches like his should live as faithful followers of Jesus in the midst of trial, testing, and turmoil. Now, James isn't just writing to his own church in Jerusalem, though. He's also writing to other churches that are scattered. He says to all the churches in the diaspora. And actually, there was a lot of churches like James's. There was a divide in the early Christian church between those who came to be Jesus followers from Judaism. So all the earliest apostles were like that. James included, Paul included. They had been Jews before they became followers of Jesus. But then quickly, they were outpaced by those who came to Christianity from a Gentile background, a non-Jewish background, a pagan background. And so there was this divide that we see very early on in the church between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. And so James is writing to churches that are filled largely with Jewish Christians. This is his advice to them. And that's why he says he's writing to the 12 tribes who are in the dispersion, the diaspora, those who are scattered. And that's one of the reasons why I want us to study James's letter, because right now we are the church that is scattered, aren't we? I mean, we're scattered everywhere. And though there's the, the faithful remnant, you know, who are here in the sanctuary this morning, the reality is the vast majority of us, that's right, the vast majority of us aren't here. And we don't know when we'll be here. And so we are the church that is scattered. And being scattered is, is, is hard. And being scattered is a test. And that's what James talks about this morning. We're being tested in so many ways. Our faith is being tested. Our our community as a church body is being tested. Our bonds of affection towards one another are being tested. Our, Our mutual understanding is being tested. Our commitment to justice is being tested. Our 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 tolerance for risk is being tested. Our patience is being tested. Our mental health is being tested. Our spiritual vitality is being tested. Our entire society is being tested right now. Now, I can only speak personally, but I assume I am not alone in saying that these last five months have been a test. They have been a trial unlike anything else that I have ever faced in my life before. You know, the word has become so over-shop-worn and overused, it's cliche. These times truly are unprecedented for us. Now, of course, we can point to pandemics and struggles throughout human history, but sorry, I wasn't there for them. So for me and for many of us, this is truly an unprecedented set of circumstances. 
And so we're being tested. And so in the midst of all this, we can ask, what is the point of it all? What's the point of all this testing? And that's what I want us to look at and examine in our passage from James this morning. What's the point of testing? What are some test-taking strategies that'll maybe get us through this? And what's our, what's our study guide? How are we going to do this? Those are the three things we're going to look at this morning. So first, what's the point of testing? Why does God test? Or why does God allow us to be tested? Now, we know that, you know, we take tests in school so that they can evaluate whether we've mastered the course material. That's the point of a test of an evaluation. Or, you know, there's the presidential physical fitness test to see how strong we are or how fast we are, how flexible we are, how athletic we are. We take a road test to reveal if we are, you know, safe enough to operate a a motor vehicle on the roads. And so all the tests that we're used to taking are about proving something proving something to someone else. But God's tests are different because God's tests are about improving something. That something being us. We're used to tests that are about proving something. God's tests, though, when he allows us to be tested, that's about improving something. That something is us. That's what James means when he says this. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces, produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So God tests us, James says, in order to make us more steadfast, perfect, and complete. And what James is talking about here isn't some kind of moral perfection. Moral perfection is impossible. But this perfection he's talking about is a a completeness, which, which if I were to summarize it in a word, what he's talking about here is maturity. That God tests us, God allows us to be tested in order to produce maturity. So God tests in order to mature us. And we cannot mature if we are not tested. What does it mean to be patient if you've never had to wait? What, what does it mean to persevere if you have never faced an obstacle? What does it mean to accept feedback if you've never been criticized? What does it mean to have faith if you've never entertained a doubt? What does it mean to sacrifice if you've never been asked to give to the point where you feel it? What does it mean to really love someone if you've never had a disagreement or an argument with them? What does it mean to to, to be in community if you've never faced a conflict? What does it mean to forgive if you've never been wronged? All of those are examples of tests that give us the opportunity to grow, to mature in Christ, to let steadfastness have its full effect. Because if something isn't tested, then it hasn't been proven. You know, we can say that that the church of Jesus Christ, it matters, it's the hope of the world, Uh, but then when our ability to gather as the church and be the church in the way that we're used to is taken away from us, then what do we do? If we just allow ourselves to drift away, then that's proving something. But if we double down and we stay connected and we do what it takes, we put in the work, well, then that's proving something different. That's maturing. Or we can say, yeah, you know, Scripture is, is at the center of my faith, that, 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 that God's Word is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct, but then we can never open it. We can never truly engage with it. We can just read it in order to um, kind of reaffirm what we already believe and think. That's proving something. But then if we not just, if we don't just read the Bible, but we actually allow it to read us and to challenge us, 
and to make us uncomfortable where it contradicts what we already think, well, then that's maturing. And so maturation then, it's this process of learning, of trying, of failing, of of getting back up again, of processing what went wrong, what went right, so we can do better next time. And it's important to note here that maturation is about spiritual growth. It's not just about getting older, right? Aging is inevitable. Maturing is not. Fine wines, they get better with age. I don't know about boxed wines. That's what I'm used to. But, but fine wines, they get better with age. Scotch gets better with age. Milk does not, okay? <laughs> and so if as Christians we're not maturing, we're spoiling. And James, he warns against this opposite of maturity when he talks about the double-minded person and he compares them to a wave. And a wave is something that on its own, it looks powerful. It looks impressive, even. But a wave is just water that is being acted upon by forces outside of itself. Wind, tide, the sand beneath it. As N.T. Wright says on this passage, he says, the challenge of faith, which is really the challenge of maturity, the challenge of faith and maturity is not to be a wave, not to be something that is merely acted upon by forces outside of it. To switch metaphors and riff off of Chesterton, a dead thing can go with the waves, but only a living thing, only a maturing thing can go against them. And so maturity is the ability to go with Christ, even against the waves, even against the grain. That's the point of testing, maturity. But what are some test-taking strategies? Because everyone who's taken a test knows that there are some tricks to the trade, whereas you can do your best, achieve to your best ability on a test. You know, that's part of the thing when people take the, L, the LSAT or they take the MCAT or something like that. Part of it is just learning the tricks about how to take the test, not just mastering the material. And there's, you know, the process of elimination. So you don't have to know the right answer if you can eliminate first the wrong answers. Or if you're going through a test and you get stuck on a question, just go to an easier question and then you can circle back. Or there's the old, if it says all of the above or none of the above, odds are it's going to be that one. And then there's the desperation strategy. When you're running out of time, just fill in all C's. But what are some test-taking strategies that that, that God has given to his people and that James gives his congregation? And so those can really, the test-taking strategies we see, they are captured by these four imperative verbs we see in verses 2 through through 6. And an imperative verb is a command. An indicative verb is just telling you something happened. You know, Dave ran to the store. That's an indicative verb. But if you go, run to the store, Dave, that's an imperative. So these are our imperative verbs. And James loves imperative verbs because he knows his congregation needs good, solid advice. And so the first strategy we see is this from this imperative verb. Consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, when you're tested. So it's about the right frame of mind. Because your outlook can determine your outcome. Your attitudes can shape your actions. We know that when facing a test, we have a choice. Is this a chore that we have to just endure? Or is this a challenge to be accepted? Second test-taking strategy. James says, know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so an understanding mind is essential for test-taking. 
Understanding that faith in the Bible, it's always tested. Abraham, he's like the paradigm of faith. His faith was tested. Go to the land that I'm going to show you. Faith is always tested, and so God tests to bring out the best in us. And so God's testing is always to work for us, not against us. Third test-taking strategy, let steadfastness have its full effect. So the imperative verb there is let. That's about allowing and permitting. It's about surrendering our will to God. Thy will be done. And so God cannot build our character through a test without our cooperation. Now, God can still use us. God can always use us. Like, like a carpenter can always use a hammer to pound in a nail. But we don't want that kind of relationship with God. Instead, what God wants to do through testing is to equip us to be his co-laborers in the kingdom in this world. And fourth and finally, here's the last testing strategy we see. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. And so when tested, we need to ask God for wisdom so that we don't miss the lesson that he's trying to teach us in the midst of the, te- uh, 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 of the test. And then wisdom is about so much more than knowledge, though, because, you know, knowledge is like knowing how to take things apart. But wisdom is knowing that when we're tested, when we're broken, how does God want us to put the pieces back together? So those are the four testing strategies. A joyful attitude, an understanding mind, a surrendered will, and a believing heart. So we've seen what testing is for, maturation. We've seen these four test-taking strategies. But lastly, and ever so briefly, briefly, what's our study guide for the test? Now, Amy and I, we took a class together in college called Developmental Psychopathology. And it was a fascinating class from Professor Abby Gewurz. She was a British woman. She's still at the, uh, she's still at the U. I looked this up. And so it was a fascinating class. She, she was, I mean not my favorite professor ever, but, uh, uh, and, and as we got near the end of the class, um, we asked her, hey, what's going to be on the final? You know, should we just focus on what we studied in lecture and in recitation? And I mean, we had like a really thick textbook. We've all, if you've been to college, you've had these huge textbooks, you know, it's no different in this class. And so we said, what should we be focusing on? What should we be studying for for the final? And her answer was everything. What should we study? She said, everything. That was not helpful. That did not score her brownie points in our hearts. But thankfully, God is not like our professor. He doesn't lead us to say, well, just study everything. As James says, it says every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, God wants us to be mature. He wants us to ace the test. And he's given us the perfect literal study guide in Jesus. Jesus is the one whom it says in Hebrews, he was tested in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And these test-taking, you know, strategies I talked about, well, Jesus, the perfect exemplar. In John, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, he says, I'm teaching you everything I'm teaching you so that your joy, my joy might be in you. Jesus had perfect knowledge of God's will. He fully submitted himself to the Father's plan, and he trusted God completely to the very end, knowing that it was only by enduring the testing of the cross that he would win for us the crown of life. And so here's the truth. 
whatever tests we're facing. We can do so with joy because we have Jesus right there taking it with us. And the wonderful thing about this test is it's open book, right? We've got the book right there to help us take the test. And Jesus hasn't just already taken that test. He's aced it. And he's there with us. And on the other side of all of that is Christian maturity and the crown of life that comes from walking with him. So we can take this test and we can ace this test. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we are in the midst of many great trials as a country, as a church, and as individuals. And Lord, so often it can feel like we are facing these tests and these struggles without a purpose or on our own. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have eyes to see and hearts to believe that you are in the midst of these trials and these struggles, and you have not sent them there to us to break us, but in order to make us into the people you want us to be. And Lord, that you want us to win the race. You want us to ace the test. You want us to wear the crown of life. And so give us eyes to see where you're at work and hearts to believe that you are working in us. In Jesus' name, amen.